Hello and welcome back. Wow, in this episode, I interview Shane Cooper, the founder of Defeat Socks. Defeat started in the early 90s and has since grown into the largest cycling sock brand in the world. Get ready for a ride. We cover a lot here, from how he started with basically no plan at all, how he rebuilt the company after a fire destroyed literally everything, to how he has and continues to leverage partnerships to set his brand apart, grow and thrive in an ever-changing retail landscape. Shane drops a lot of tips that apply to a wide range of industries, and I know there's something here for everyone. So kick off those shoes, hopefully you've got some comfy socks on, and sit back and get ready to take notes. Welcome to The Build Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, The Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of... The Build Cycle. Shane, we just finished the factory tour. You walked me through everything, and we'll have that video up on bikerumor.com for people who want to kind of get a visual idea of what you guys do here at Defeat. And you told me you're celebrating your 25th anniversary. And so, in a nutshell, rather than me put it into my words, uh, just tell us, you know, what does Defeat do? We like to say that we make the world's fastest socks. Um, we are a small micro sockery here located in Hildebrand, North Carolina. We are an innovative company that searches everywhere for, for fibers and for technology that we can bring to the sport of cycling in which we love. We are, most of the principals here are, are, are cyclists and many of the employees are cyclists as well. In fact, one of our artists uh, suffered a broken leg this year uh, riding a mountain bike. So uh, he, uh, you'll meet him later. His name's Matt. I'm sure that you'll see him in the video. But uh, he's off his, out of his wheelchair and off his crutches now. And you guys also do some running socks, right? Yes, we do have a running uh, segment as well. And in fact, that happened by mistake probably for three years into the business, I would say. Um, triathletes started using our socks and next thing I know we've got you know the world's best triathletes in the world you know coming to us to to get socks. McKilly Jones was an Olympian um, and so anyway uh, that segment led into the running market and uh, we have a nice little uh, segment of run socks as well. What's the percentage bike sock sales versus run oh, socks? We're, we're, we're 70 80 percent cycling. Okay is it the the focus on cycling is just because you just really like cycling and is it a capacity issue or why don't you expand into other types of socks? Well, we've tried expansion many times. We we expanded with golf. We were being sold in uh, Pebble Beach, Kiowa Island. We had uh, Nick Price. We had all these professional golfers, David Duvall. They were all wearing defeat socks, but we couldn't capitalize on that market very well. It's very difficult. Uh, just the way the distribution was set up, and so we've done hockey socks. You know, uh, we've we've uh, done soccer socks. 
And it, with Run, uh, you know, we can do the event custom sock and we can do a really, really, really good job at it. But in the competition for Run is a little bit different than the competition for cycling. You've got big companies like Nike and Reebok and Saucony and Brooks that control a lot of that sock wall. And then you've got some really good companies like Features and Belega that only specialize in the run segment. So what we have decided is uh, we're the best run sock in the custom area. So we'll come to your event, do your great sock, uh, made in America. I have recycled water bottles. And, uh, yeah. Right on. And you guys have been around for a long time, 25 years this year. And to me, that sounds like you've been doing this before anybody else. Were you guys the first kind of cycling-specific sock in the market? Yes. Um, we were the first cycling-specific uh, company. And I'll tell you, for the first five years, when you would go to Las Vegas to the trade show, every single company that had a brand, uh, be it Look, CD, Shimano, Campagnolo, um, Rock Shocks, all those guys, Power Bar, they all had Defeat Socks, and they were using them, and if somebody had written this up at the time, they were using them as currencies, tradable currencies, to where they were trading a Look Sock for a CD Sock or whatnot. So we were the only game in town, and we were the only game in town, we started in 92, and we had the market cornered until 2001 when we had our fire. So uh, it was, but it was born out of uh, kind of out of necessity. My wife and I were bike racers, and um, my background was 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 uh, my family background was hosiery, and my father had a knitting machine. So I took one of his knitting machines, and he gave me 30 days to pay for it, or whatever. Three, I think he gave me three months. And uh, I was the president or team captain of a, of, a, of a club, and I made our team socks. So it paid my way to the bike races for, you know, a month or whatever. And that's kind of how it started, out of the trunk of a Ford Taurus. You know, my wife and I would travel around to bike races and sell socks. You know, it's kind of how it started. That's the, the perfect segue because I was about to backtrack to ask how it got started. So hosiery, like pantyhose that your dad was making? Uh, hosiery is a, uh, <clears throat> kind of a strange word for socks. Okay. Uh, our family immigrated uh, in the late 60s, and my father was a, a technician for a knitting machine called Bentley, which is like saying Campagnolo among knitting machines back then. And he was highly sought after. And eventually he became the distributor for Bentley in America, which sold parts for knitting machines and entire knitting machines. So I, I ended up studying electronics and went to school at Bentley and learned the electronic side because it was just starting to, to go from mechanical to electronic knitting machines. So I was right there at the birth of all that. And so when he had this first electronic knitting machine and I was the captain of this cycling team, I just saw another place to put a sponsor's logo. So we made the sock for Cool Breeze Cyclery. And we were sponsored by Cannondale. And so I approached Cannondale with a custom sock idea, and they bought it. And, you know, next thing I knew, within the first year, we had Team L.A. Sheriff. The second year, we had Team Gone, which is Greg LeMond's team. And then 94, which is, is the second year, was, was uh, also... Mape GB. 
And all of a sudden, we were on everybody. Uh, the, the whole pro peloton was wearing Defeat socks, and it took us all over the world. What was the option before Defeat? Just your standard Kmart white sports socks? Well, yeah, it was. If you go back and look at your your history books in cycling, you'll see a lot of Italian nylon socks. Um, you'll see like dress socks, kind of like uh, feminine white dress <laughs> socks. Yeah. Uh, but then, then the 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 double cylinder jacquard type of sock came along. Um, trying to think of a brand that you'd, uh, I think Desant did some of those, and it was a sock that looked really good, looked like cotton. It didn't look like nylon, it wasn't shiny, but it, they would self destruct. You'd wear them one time, you'd throw them away. But really, the reason I started Defeat was there was a company called uh, Coolmax that, that Dupont owned. And it was a space-age technology of wicking. Cotton absorbs water. Nylon doesn't do much with water. You know, it just kind of sits there. But with Coolmax, it actually wicked the moisture away. And going back to the my my uh, the the sock that I have displayed that's cut open, that's where we decided to put the Coolmax on the inside. All right. So that you had this one machine, right, from your dad? I had one machine, three and months to pay for it. How many socks could you produce in a given day off of one well, machine? Well, it's, it's, that's a good question. Um, I think it's about four minutes for a, a, a sock. Okay. okay. So I was on the phone. I was calling customers. I was buying yarn. I was tying yarn on, and I was mechanicing on the machine. And... Uh, then I found some people that could do it. It just kind of grew from there. I, I went from one machine to three machines to eight machines to 12 to 16. It just kept growing. Did you have to hack the machine at all to get it to go from whatever traditional hosiery socks were being made from to start working with Coolmax and more high-performance materials? Not necessarily the yarn hack. It was more of a hack of the construction of the finger layout in the machine, uh, which... To the layman, what that would mean is is we reverse the yarns, which I've talked about a couple of times today. And that, believe it or not, just it is not just tying one yarn in one place and one yarn in another. It's actually manipulating the machine to do that. And so that's that's one of the biggest hacks that we had to do. And still, 25 years later, that's our secret sauce. And we talk about it. So it's, yeah. That's neat. The... When you got your first machine, it, it sounds like you kind of did it because you thought it would be cool to have your logo and your for your own personal use and your team's use. How, was the business opportunity of this always in the back of your mind, or did it just kind of like people came up to the race and said, hey, that's cool, where'd you get that? It was a, hey, cool, where'd you get that? Uh, and people that know me, uh, I, I don't have a business plan, never have had a business plan. I didn't understand that I was even starting a business. And fortunately, I'm creative. Um, I, I like art. I'm not an artist. Um, but I was able to understand how to create a company from scratch the old-fashioned way. And there's no way I could have read a book, because I'm dyslexic, number one, but there's no way I could read a book and then figure out how to start a company. It just, it just happened. The... <laughs> now I'm even more curious. So you had this, you, you agreed to buy a machine off of your dad with no business model in mind until you produce these socks. Like, how are you going to pay for that machine? Uh, you don't think about that. <laughs> but how you know, old were you? Uh, 29. Okay. And, and uh, you know, I matured late mentally, I'm sure. Uh, 
Dude, I was a musician from from graduating high school until I was 25, and then I was a bike racer from 25 to I was 35. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that the money part never even entered my mind. But luckily, in 1992, I married the woman of my dreams who turned out to have an incredible financial mind. And that is the secret to my success, of course, is is my wife Hope. And so she was able to help me with what I was doing and say, okay, this is how we're going to pay for that. And basically, I didn't get paid from defeat at all. You know, I took that money and built the, the business as we went. But we paid our machine debts to my father off first, and then we paid them off to the banks as we went. And, and that, was that the year? So you married her the year you started the company, yeah, it sounds oops. like. Right? <laughs> yeah. A lot going on. But I guess it's good timing. Yeah, and, and ironically enough, that was 1992. Uh, we got married in May, and we went to the Tour de Pont for our honeymoon, where we saw Greg LeMond don the yellow jersey. Within a year and a half, my hero, Greg LeMond, called me on the telephone. And so all of a sudden, I realized that, you know, I, I actually visioned that we would become friends. I visioned that we'd become business partners, and all that happened. I, I visioned that we would ride a bike together, and we did. Cool. And then, so you go from one machine to three machines, and at what point did you, were you buying these off of your dad or in a direct, or like, where did you go from borrowing from your dad to do it to bank financing? Yeah. Um, my father, uh, he passed away in 1995, so he passed away three years into my business. And, you know, the first year you start a business, 1992, in November, so 93, 94, and then he passed away in 95. So uh, I bought the machinery from the distributor that he was dealing with. So I was able to buy directly from that distributor. And then we built it up from there. And I got to go to his banker and told them that I was going to have this company. And it was by then it was three years, four years old. You know, it was it was getting, before we had to go to the banks, it, it was... Uh, Probably the third year we went to the bank. And so you, up until that point, you were just using that one yeah, machine? Yeah, just plowing the money back in. How many socks had you made before you upgraded to uh, new machines? I don't know. Uh, I do know that I had a $30, $30 allowance that my wife gave me. <laughs> now, my wife was a cardiac rehab director at the time, and she had a, a very good job and uh, very financially uh, savvy. So... You know, that, that really, really set the stage. I like to say that my wife is all the black and white and all the rules, and I'm the massive color blob of madness. Okay. All right, on. and how, how quickly before you started hiring people? Oh, gosh. Well, my sister was my first employee, mm. and she had just graduated college, and her name's Caroline Brandon now, but she was Caroline Cooper, of course. And uh, she came to work at Defeat and started helping me, uh, and I can't even remember what capacity, but now she does a lot of the internal stuff on the, on the uh, actual orders and how they actually get transferred to the machinery, and she handles our international uh, accounts, uh, and she also, uh, customer service for the uh, international accounts, and she also is our chief happiness officer. So she makes sure that everybody is in a good mood and happy. What was, well, so I, I need to ask them to qualify my next question. Did she come on and just start helping you out because she's your sister or was it full on like, I need a salary and 
Oh, we this paid is going to be a real job. We paid her. And now remember that my father's company, uh, I, I actually had to run that while he got sick. So I was running that company and had my hobby defeat growing inside of my dad's company, so to speak. I was using one of his rooms. Uh, and so somewhere along the way, we made that transition. And I want to think that she started getting full pay from defeat in 1995 when he passed away. And then I bought the building from my from the family's estate and uh, so the, and then you know the employees started coming I mean we had three shifts I'm sure in 1995 we had three shifts running for defeat for defeat wow. yeah and I was paying rent in that room that I had from my father's but you know it was really pretty cool because I was able to buy this from my family uh, so so what happened to the the hosiery company the original one that, uh, because the co the parent company, Bentley, which I mentioned earlier, they didn't progress with the electronics like the Italians did. And Bentley was an English company. And they went from 5,000 employees down to like eight. And then they imploded. So the parts were still needed for all the old machines out there. But then NAFTA came along, all those old machines went all over the world, but there are no, none of those old machines left anymore, and they were mechanical. So that business just kind of died off, and my family ran it, and I kind of separated from that to focus fully on defeat, you know, right at right about that same time. When you say mechanical, like punch card mechanical, like the uh, old knitting machine? Yeah, that's the, yeah, you're a technical guy. Chain driven. So the chain that is on the machine, let's say it's like a bicycle chain, and it had uh, 110 links. And then they would have a little notch that raised up a, a lever. I'll show you one of these out here. It's amazing. And it made it do something else. And then this chain link made it do something else. Hmm. So um, that's kind of how that technology worked. But I, I guess now that I remember, at that point, though, your family's company was more of a parts and machine yes, distributor, right, not right, making right. hosiery. Anymore. No, they never made hosiery. Oh, okay. They never made hosiery. I was the only nut job to want to make hosiery. Right. Gotcha. Or as we call it, socks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, from a more business-oriented standpoint, like what sort of projections did you have to do? Like, how did you go to the point you say, okay, well, now we can afford more machines, or now we need more machines? Was it like, hey, we're doing X number of revenue, like we can get some more machines, or like we just need to make more socks? Let's get some machines and figure it out. Dude, it was like a landslide. Like I said earlier, I mean, it was like left and right. We were just doubling in sales every year. Every year, it was double in sales. And double in sales meant we had cash flow, we could buy machines, we paid the building off. We didn't really have a, a debt. Hope, ran, my wife ran the books so good that we very seldom, we paid the banks off so quick they got mad. <laughs> we were paying, we paid the building off, we, we did an addition. The building that we had back then was about 5,000 square feet, my father's building. And then we doubled that space. We paid that doubling off in a year and a half. So we, we just kept growing like leaps and bounds. And, and uh, going into October, so we had 9-11, right? And then in October, about a month later, we burned to the ground. What caused that? A light ballast. Oh, jeez. A light ballast blew up above a, bill, above a ceiling and festered, and I think 13 fire departments came here. And so we lost everything we had. We couldn't do anything. And for three years, I became a um, 
basically a, 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 a defense attorney. <laughs> you know, uh, we had uh, we had to fight the insurance company, unfortunately. Why? Like, how was it disputed? Was it well? You fault? know, it, this is a great business question. In fact, if if I could have read this part about business, I would have been much better off. But you know, you, as a business owner, you have insurance, and that insurance gives you an um, uh, what do they call it? Business interruption policy. Well, a business interruption policy is to pay you while you're down, and basically they're going to pay you your your revenue from last year, right? Well, we were doubling in sales every year, and we weren't a sock company. We've never been a sock company. We're a sports apparel company. We're a cycling company, and that was growing. But what they came to the table with, they said um, they were going to give us 3% over revenues from last year, but we were 50% revenues of last year. And three years later, we settled for 33% in arbitration. So 33% growth? Yeah. On over over our revenue from the prior year. So they were matching your revenue, and then the next year it'd be revenue plus like times one point three three, and then like that. Well, we had not just thirty three percent of your revenue. Yeah, thirty three percent of the revenue is what we settled on. That's what they had to write as a check for. But you know they wanted to write that, a check just for the revenue from last year. Right. Plus three percent. So profit then. Like they're trying to cover your profit. Yes, correct. Because you don't have any operating. Yes, re- I'm sorry. Profit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. So, but uh, you, and and what happens is it, it turns into an argument. They said that hosiery moved to to China and it's going down, and American jobs are going down, and so they put us in that boat. So we had nine months with no machinery. That's when some of these competitors were were born, you know, in our segment. How quickly were you able to get? machines back up and running and get back to your original nine months we were out for the count we had to move to another location and uh, we moved back in nine months later and we're running socks with new machinery at that same level where you no, because we lost we lost lost market share our competitors came in and kicked shit out of us while we're down sorry Um, but you know so I, I just wish that I would have known a little bit more of what to do in that situation, you know. And, and you, we had to hire attorneys. We had to hire. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it's just maddening. You and and then we had seven years with no profit, just trying to get our head above water. You know, we went the day of the fire. We went from fifty employees to twenty-five employees. Did you keep those 25 on payroll during the Yep, we kept them, and we paid them and uh, never missed a pay period. And luckily, you know, my wife is the magician with money, and we were able to make that happen. Uh, I would never want to go through that again. I'd never want my competitors want to go through that again. It's it's terrible. Everything you have uh, smells like smoke, you know, all the paperwork that you have, and you smell it for years. Terrible. Yeah, the... Seven, why did it take seven years? What was going on that it was not profitable for the seven years? Well, later? you lose market share. Okay, so I, I went on a, a, a tour, and I forgot how many bike shops I saw that year after we burned. And basically, I was going in, shaking the owner's hand, telling them to look at their light ballast. If they have a light ballast that's flickering, get it checked. And make sure your insurance is up to date. And by the way, we'll be back, and here's a gift please keep us in mind. We couldn't provide goods. And so uh, 
I mean, there's so many pitfalls in those seven years that, that happened at defeat. It was absolutely terrible. But, you know, we were then we were growing tiny, tiny um, in, in, in revenue, in overall revenue. It was no profit, but we were barely growing. You don't have any marketing dollars. You can't tell anybody you're here. And some of the bike shops couldn't wait. They had to switch over to the, the competitors. And then how do you dislodge the competitor? You know, you got to kind of play the waiting game. And luckily, it, seven, we got profitable in, in 2008. Hmm. The worst economic times in our history, we got profitable. I mean, it's crazy. So let's talk about the competition then a little bit. You, you mentioned earlier the, what separates your sock, where you guys reverse the, the way the threads or the yarns are placed into the machine so that you get the softer cool max on the inside and the more durable layer on the outside. But it's also, you and I have discussed this before, it's also the, the I don't know what it's called, the thread count, needle count, like the density of the fabric compared to, let's say, this might be a bad word here, but you know, Swiftwick has a very different feel than you, and yes. it's a much denser, uh, tighter feeling cuff than what the feet has. What's well, they're geniuses, actually. I got to give them props because they they turned a tight sock into a uh, a good word. Um, you know, they, they they call it compression, and that's genius. I call it a tight sock. Uh, on their on their behalf, they've done an incredible job, and they've been a great competitor. Actually, they make their products in in uh, in North Carolina. They started in Tennessee. My hat goes off to them, and they came into the game way late. After I I, I think that um, maybe two thousand four. I'm just guessing, and they did a wonderful job. Uh, and the difference is, uh, I should, probably shouldn't. I should say that these are my opinions. The difference is, is they use, in my opinion, a 200 needle machine and we use a 168 needle machine. And there's what you're referring to as gauge and the gauge of the fabric and how it feels. And we feel that we want to be able to wear a product for six hours if we want to do a century. We want it to be comfortable. Um, I don't particularly think that a tight sock, no matter if it's compression or not, I don't think it's comfortable. Is it uh, proven that uh, you know compression works? Yes, in hospital patients with a compression piece on their calf for uh, intravenous blood flow. That's proven, absolutely proven. But it's not proven yet in science for sports. And if we're talking about a tight sock in a shoe, do you want a tight sock? Blood flow is what needs to happen in a foot for comfort, for warmth. And for cooling, blood flow has to happen. So it's a compressive sock in a shoe, to me, doesn't work. It works for those guys, and it works for their customers. But, like I said, they're geniuses in marketing because they made that happen. Hats off to them. So with the, the product development that you guys do, because you, you do introduce new models and stuff, whereas you know to hear you talk, it's like, well, we make a fantastic sock. So how do you come up with ideas for either a minor tweak to an existing model or an entirely new model? Well, first and foremost, we look at machinery. And when we get innovations in machinery, like our levitator light is made with no toe seam. Um, so that's an innovation that's out there for everybody to get. But the way we construct ours is so much different, as we've talked about before, it's longer lasting. Um, so. Then we look, because we're in North Carolina, and we have our own PD department here at our facility. What's PD? Uh, product development. Okay. 
And so North Carolina is is textile, you know, heaven, if you will. NC State's down the road, you know, down in Raleigh. We have the ability to talk directly to the yarn companies. We have the ability to get those yarns brought here, and we get to test them here in our facility, and then I get to go and ride in it and test it like I did today, our top secret sock that I was riding with today, which hopefully would be in the Tour de France uh, in, in July, and then on our customers' feet in, in August. So the proximity, the fact that we have our own machinery and we can do our product development here, and I could give two examples right now that are, are pretty recent examples. The first one was uh, a reflective, a round cross-sectioned reflective yarn. Nobody has had that for years. I've been asking for that for 25 or 20, actually 22 years because I found it about three years ago. Uh, normally a reflective yarn, and, and your customer base will get this, they're technical people, but it's, it's crushed glass on a flat piece of mylar. That's what you see in shoes, and it, it's just, it, it doesn't knit. And so, because it's flat, it would break. And so I found a guy in, in France that made it in a round cross section, and he basically did it like a, uh, a pretzel. He sprinkled the, the glass on the round cross section. We got that in, and we were the first company in the world to get it. Even though Nike was his customer, he chose defeat because his process of making it was difficult, and he wasn't sure how much he could ramp it up. So we were the first customer to get that. And we took a product to market about two years ago. Just last week, um, there's a new fiber, and it's a... Uh, it's a um, nanotech graphite type of carbon that we're looking at. I'm not going to say why, but we're looking at it, and we're going to be one of the only companies getting it. Going back a step to the to the reflective yarn, most yarns come in at about $18 a pound. That yarn came in at $900 a pound. Oh, and our competitors looked at it and said, we're crazy. No, we're not, because it only adds $1.50 more per sock if you use it correctly. So a dollar fifty more per sock to be seen at night is not a bad deal. So we, you know, so this new yarn uh, that we're looking at, which I mentioned a second ago, is uh, nine. What is it? It's four hundred dollars a pound. We're going to look at it because I've got some ideas on where it can be used. So we're constantly taking the gamble on that and and defeat spirit. Uh, this I don't know how your uh, listeners will or and readers will. Uh, remember this, but Bugs Bunny, there's a character called Wile E. Coyote. You know, he had a lot of experience, uh, experiments that went wrong, but a lot of them here at Defeat go right, but you're still, you, that was on the Roadrunner show. I don't know if anybody saw that, but anyway, um, we like to think we're like Wile E. Coyote. We'll try anything when it comes to technology. We're not afraid. We, we're small enough to stop and give it a try. The materials, is it usually the you know, NC State or Unify or whoever coming to you and saying, hey, look, you know, this is what we've got? Or do you ever go to them and say, look, this is what we need. Can you make this? Yeah. I mean, uh, when I go and sat, when I used to go sit down with the yarn companies, they would ask me, what do you need? And I would always start off, I said, I need a round cross-section uh, <laughs> reflective yarn. And we finally found one, but it wasn't the big companies that found it. Um, another... Well, I'm, I usually tell them what I need, and it's usually way in front of what they're thinking. Uh, one of the things that we keep our eye on is uh, the spider silk. 
There was a guy in North Carolina that domesticated spiders. He had a grant, and he was farming spiders and getting their silk. And? Does it work? It's just, there is, a, in the Smithsonian, there's a spider silk gown. It's not, he didn't make it. It was made by a, a million spider silks that were collected on an island, and they made this, this gown, and it's incredible. But there's a guy synthesizing it in California, and there's a company in France that's synthesizing it. There's one in Germany, and it's supposed to be uh, the strongest per weight material with elongation and elasticity any, than anything in the world. I mean, you think about it, spider web. Right. So yeah, that, that's how far out we think, and these things are you know, they're common. They're out there. You can you can you can read about them. So what's, is there an example of a fiber that you guys are using that was created specifically for you or because of your inquiry? Uh, the reflective yarn, absolutely. You know that's that's kind of one that uh, we can take big claim to, and we still use it. Um, in fact, the the guy the the manufacturer wanted defeat to kind of be the spokesperson for it in America, and I actually pitched it to other companies to see if they would get on board and buy it directly from the from from our supplier so what what scale or what size of a company or what size of an order do you have to be placing with a, a textile manufacturer to be able to walk in and say hey guys this is what I need and actually ah, get them to start ah, working I on see. it because well, small guys couldn't do that you yes know, you, they can. you've reached a point yes you, no 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 I, I disagree and here's why I disagree size does not matter in that case because if you have athletes that are in the best bike races in the world or best events in the world, and they're astronauts. So if you have access to get to Tom Boonen or Mark Cavendish like Defeat does, we can get them to test products for us. Even though we are small, we're, as I said, we're a micro soccery. We're not Budweiser, you know, we're, we're the small micro brewery, but we have incredible uh, product development skills. So the yarn companies will listen to us. And what they hope is is we get it on one of our athletes or astronauts, and it's the trickle-down effect. And then one of the big suppliers, and, you know, a lot of companies watch this tiny little company called Defeat. You know, if we beat Nike to the punch on this yarn and we were the first ones to get it, guess who Nike's looking at? We've lost technicians to Nike. You know, and that's, that's unfair. They shouldn't do that. <laughs> To the outside observer, Defeat has a pretty singular focus, cycling socks. But I know right before you guys had the fire at your facility, you were almost, you were on the cusp of launching some clothing. Ah. So a couple of questions. The, the, the first one is, like, what led to that business decision that said, you know, hey, all right, we're going to branch off from socks and we're going to go into clothing? I remember the day. It's funny. I, I appreciate you asking this because I remember the day. And I went into our little board meeting and I, I told the, the team, I said, I, had, I saw a star, a glimmer. And that glimmer of light was our clothing line. And when I said that, we, we started doing, keep in mind, we had done accessories. We had done arm skins, gloves, and shoe covers. But at that point, we started doing underwear. And then we started to do the outerwear program, which you're talking about. And the outerwear started with a, a meeting where two guys came in to sell us polymarks for 
Undershirt, you know, our, our, our undershirt. So this is 1998. Well, what's a Polymark? Polymark is your brand logo that goes on an item, like on your shorts. It's stretchy, and it shows your brand logo, Polymark. And there's this other guy sitting there, and he had a big bag with him, and he hadn't said anything yet. And I'm kind of rude. I said, well, what the hell are you here for? So all of a sudden, he starts throwing all these shoes on my table, and I'm going, Shoe? are you a shoe salesman? He said, no, Shane. I'm Billy Fay, and I sell the material that goes in the shoe. And I looked at one of these shoes, and all of a sudden, I had an idea for a short. And I thought, and it's basically aerospace or material, which goes on a backpack pad. And this idea was, was patented. We got a utility patent on that. And um, we developed this short with the under-23 national program in Belgium. And it was very unique. We... we we took the lycra fabric that you're that's in a short and we baseball stitched it to a pad. So the pad had no lycra covering over it. The pad was right there on the front. You could see it and it was on the inside. You could, you know, it, there was no lycra cover. And what that did is it retained no water. Most pads just suck water up and they hold the sweat and you're sitting in a diaper full of nasty stuff. This, this, the sweat went straight through. It also dried quick because the air would come in the aerospacer. And it also offered a, a, a sliding, slight sliding abrasion resistant movement in the aerospacer. And of the people that, that got to try this short and use this short, um, I think I had 300 made. I had one person say that they didn't like it. And so the short, then we had a jacket, uh, and we had a full clothing line. And this was before uh, the adventures of Rafa started coming out. You got to remember, this is two thousand, two thousand one. And um, did any of this go to market? This is all R and D. We did all the R and D for about two years, and I, I hesitate to, to say why it didn't go to market, but we had the official. Um, Greg Lamond, we had his clothing line. He and I made a business deal, and we could sell the Greg Lamond clothing line. He had a $30 million bike line in America being sold by Trek. So our plan was to, to use that to sell the Greg Lamond clothing line to all the uh, Lamond dealers across America, and then the defeat line would be you know what we sold. And we know that rest of that story. Greg Lamond spoke his mind about truth and said all the things that he thought were true and they were and he lost his deal with Trek and I went up to meet with um, Trek officials and right in the middle of all this. So Defeat got slammed down with the no-go after three years of you know but the good news... Because you were going to be relying on Trex Distribution Network yeah, alongside correct. the Lamont yeah, bikes. Right, right. So you still could have launched it under your own brand. Yeah, but and, and we, we tried. We tried. But you got to remember, the day that I signed the agreement to be the under-23 clothing supplier for two years with the USA Cycling was the day we burned down. Mm. The contract that I sent to their office has ash on it and it smells like like soot but we still we did it we tried it but then we found out that uh, 
you know, we, we couldn't keep doing it. The good news is with the new Best Book program, we're bringing that shit back. We're going to bring all those things back because they were way ahead of their time. I had a, 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 a very well-known editor, uh, um, um, published writer, shall I say. And I'll, I'll say his name is uh, Maynard Hershon. Uh, he sent me a note just the other day, and he said, what the hell did you guys do to this short? I've still got this short, and I still wear this short. How did you make it so durable? So the, the short is probably maybe two years out. I, I'm speaking way out of terms. we got a lot of work to do to bring that thing back. But we do have a utility patent on it. Right. The, I'm going to back up a little bit and spin off of my original question. So you were doing this at because it sounds like maybe because you saw some cool opportunities with different fabrics, something that wasn't yes, being done, right. but yes. it was also way outside of your core competency at the time. Were you going to produce those items in-house? Uh, we produced them in, in the U.S., and we worked with what we were doing, <clears throat> Tyler, we were bringing fabrics from the outdoor industry to the cycling world. We were bringing fabrics from the shoe industry to the cycling world. And so we had Drylex from shoes. We brought... Um, Pontatorto, you'll see this this year in a jacket. You'll see these materials start to come out. Um, so we were bringing these fabrics to the world of cycling, and that's when we got nailed nailed down. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question. But I, so the the what I'm trying to get at, or the, the what I, the lesson I would like to our readers to pick up on is, you know, if, if you're doing something, you're doing something really well and you're growing, 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 and you see continued room for growth, does it, obviously there was something you looked at that said this makes sense for us to risk resources mm -hmm. on a, going off on this tangent. Right. And it's... I think that risk was the fact that our product was so far ahead of everybody's, it was almost a slam dunk. The slam dunk was all those Greg LeMond uh, customers would be wearing a Le Mans jersey that we made. That's a slam dunk. I mean, they had the bikes. They had thirty million, or I don't know if it's thirty, maybe eighteen million, or whatever it was. Where in the process did you get that distribution plan and business model with Le Mans? Was it like, hey, we got these fabrics, but let's see if we can sell them first, or was it we got these products, let's make this stuff, and then oh, we got lucky and Le Mans likes it? Uh, I think that Greg. I gave Greg. Um, part of defeat for helping us because he was our first pro 94 and so he was uh kind of on our board so he saw what we were doing and he came to me i think it was 99 i was at uh, the yellowstone club with him and uh, we made a deal that this would happen without you, without that deal would you have moved forward with the clothing line uh i don't know that's i don't know hindsight i don't know I do know this, that we were the only company making our pad in America. So even our cycling pad was made in America. And for the non-cyclists listening, the pad, you know, it's the chamois pad, the padding inside of the bike shorts so that you don't destroy your nether regions on long that's rides. Right. Cool. Well, that's, I guess, kind of the bulk of my questions as far as the business goes, but you continue to grow. What is the secret of success now? Because now, like you said, you have a lot more competition than you did at the start. How do you guys differentiate yourselves? Well, let's go back to 2008. We became profitable. Why did we become profitable in the worst economic time in our history? Because the dollar got weak. 
and our brand is very well respected in Europe and we started growing our international business. Probably one of my strengths being a guy with ADHD or whatever you want to call it and, and dyslexia is I hire people that are smarter than me and so our team here has done an incredible job. I don't care what position they're in, they're doing an incredible job. And so in 2008, our, our sales team was able to capitalize on that weak dollar. Uh, bike shops became flush with cash because people were going in and getting their old bikes out because gas was $4 a gallon. And it was crazy if you think back. So bike shops were putting Schwinn Varsity tires on, you know, so there's, they're, and so it, that really helped perpetuate defeat and give us that second boost. And from there, once we went, once we had that, we really started pushing on, on it very, very hard on the edge to, um, to grow. And so secret to success is persistence. And sometimes I think ignorance. I mean, my God, I should have stopped this, shit, this, this boat quite a long time ago. But, you know, I'm glad I didn't for sure. Um, and, and now the growth is coming from, uh, I'll tell you where the growth is coming from now, is, is the geniuses that are out there using Instagram to make a brand. And they're our customers. And it started with... Uh, Let's give credit where credit's due. I think it started with The Athletic, and we partnered with The Athletic and made, made their socks uh, for Jeremy Dunn. He's a genius. Um, and then I started seeing these other guys start pop up, like Sean Seiko. Uh, he was one of our distributors in South Africa. He became a, a Instagram success. And then uh, Ridge Supply, you know, um, uh, Ten Speed Hero, uh, Team Dream, you name it. These guys have, have taken fashion into cycling. And for the most part, most of those, except for Jeremy Dunn um, and The Athletic, are in our artist, artist collection too to get onto our distribution network because we're distributed in 37 countries. And so it's been a win-win, and we've got really good relationships with those in our artist series. And that's been a big part. Big Did you part. approach those artists, or did they come to you? Uh, Jeremy came to us, and um, he was first, as I mentioned, and then Sean Seiko was our distributor down in South Africa, so he came to us and said, hey, I have an idea. Um, uh, Rich Supply came up, and we did a bike ride one day, uh, and, and we, we, uh, I interviewed him about his accident where he got hit by a car and how he wears neon now all the time. And he said, I got an idea and I want to start this company. And I challenged him. He'll tell you if you ever talk to him. I, I challenged him and he, he met that challenge real quick. He has great designs. So those three came to us and, I, and, and the rest of them, um, yeah, they came to us. We haven't really shopped that. Now, what do they get for coming to us? They can go anywhere. I told you earlier, you can buy a fancy dress sock that, that is way more fancy than any of these guys at Kmart or Walmart but it's not going to perform. So you've got to be careful as, a, as, a, as one of these brands that have started on, inter, on, on, the, on the Instagram because you don't want to sell your product that's not made very well. And once you start losing that part of it, good luck because people won't be coming back. It's not just design. It's got to be function as well. So how much of a portion of the, your sock sales now are these artists' series? Uh I would say low, low double digits, you know, um, 
Is that uh, the fastest growing? 15% maybe, uh, and that's all of them. Um, yeah, it is, but things come in cycles, man. You look at these socks, you know, oh my God, there's a striped pink and red sock. Well, you know what? You didn't invent the stripe. The stripe's been around forever, but you made it look good. And so, you know, what if circles are hot next year? You know, is, is, is fashion and trends kind of come and go? What happens if the sock is white and three inches next year? You know, what happens? Yeah. But I will say this. Greg LeMond in 1994 wore a four-inch black sock at the Paris-Roubaix. So that's a tall sock. Actually, I think it was a five-inch. That's it was huge so, for back then. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And I still have those socks in the front for you. We'll measure them later. <laughs> the international expansion intrigues me. What was the so the weak dollar was kind of the driver, I guess, for that? But how hard was that to start selling internationally or, or grow internationally? Were you guys selling outside of America before that? Oh, I love this because uh, you know we've we've had a lot of a lot of interviews with with international trade committees and all this stuff. I went to Washington and sat in some little meetings and we've we were given the international this is actually prestigious in 2011 we we were awarded the e award export by the president of the united states and it's it's called uh um excellence in export and anyway uh people ask that same question we didn't try and sell our product people bought it and that's what's so unique about Defeat. In, in our international sales, it was because we built desire. When we started sponsoring Mape GB back in the old days, and then now we've been with Quick Step for 20 years, and it that sells socks for us. Being with Tom Boonen and Mark Cavendish and all those guys, it sells socks in Belgium. So and so when I... So it was really like your pro sponsorship because 2008 yeah. was before Instagram and, yeah, but, and for things to blow up on social media. Yeah, but that had given us, and keep in mind that that goes back to, to 94. So from 94 to 2008, we were building this, this uh, reputation in Europe of, of being a really good product. And I went to the Peru Bay, or was it the Tour de France in 98? And I walked by a store and I saw our socks in the window and I was so damn proud. Um, I was at the 98 Tour de France as a photographer driver for eight days. So I got, and that was the year all the doping scandals came out. So, you know, even though the pro cyclists have been wonderful for us for building our brand reputation in Europe because they choose to use defeat, um, you know, we've had those doping scandals that have taken it away from from us as well. The biggest story that we ever had, ever, um, we sponsored a team. They were fluorescent. It was an Italian team. I think it was Vini Fanini or something like that. And it wasn't really an official sponsorship. They had called us and wanted some fluorescent socks to match their kit, and we did. We we sent them. And they were in the Giro. Uh, they they were in the Giro one year. So we had. We had taken that team and we had launched a new product and we had them, one of the riders on a big banner. And in the Giro, one of the riders tested positive. Okay. And when they started the Giro, they had hired a guy that had been on suspension for doping. 
who tested positive the next day. And all I did on, and this was when Twitter was popular, all I did was said, uh, that's it, two strikes, you're out, we're not going to sponsor you anymore. That made headline news across the world, and I printed out the newspapers. It was in Russian, it was in Chinese, and it started out Rome, Italy, uh, sock supplier from the USA, no longer sponsors team because of doping. <laughs> so I guess you could say the defeat started sock, sock doping. <laughs> but our socks are always clean. <laughs> oh, you, there's so many we could go with that probably. <laughs> the from the distribution standpoint, the the business side of it, do you run into issues with some countries or different import structures because of most of your materials are sourced from the US? Well, we'll see with the new with the new leadership. Who knows? I mean, prior, prior to the new leadership, oh like how much of an issue is that? No, it hasn't been. Where your stuff is premium, sourced? premium products, uh, and they'll pay for premium products. I haven't seen anything. Uh, I, the, the only thing I can say on the international level, which is some of the stuff you go through as a business owner, I, I got a call from our distributor in Taiwan, and he was. I guess he, he spoke perfect American. Perfect American. He sounded like he was from America, but in perfect English. But um, he said that there was a brand in China that had my face on their website and my story, and they were selling socks that we'd never seen. So I had to call the U.S. Uh, trade commissions and see if I could get it stopped. I couldn't, and I had to spend 2500 bucks to get it to stop. And we did. How do you stop something like that? I, I, gee, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. But our distributor caught it. So um, we did get it stopped. And it was a pirate company. I, seriously, you could pull up their website and it was all Chinese. And every now and then you could see like the word Shane Cooper or whatever written out that way. And had my picture there that I was the owner of their company. Were they trying to knock off the brand? Everything, too, everything. And we had never made a single one of the socks that they had there. So that was kind of a weird thing for us. Um, but we've never really struggled with, of course, it's with the dollar being so strong, I don't know, man. It's going to be hard. I mean, you know, what is it? It's, it's gone nuts. And that, that might, we've got to find a new way to uh, look at it now. Is there, I could rattle off the companies making cycling socks in America, but are, are there strong competitors in Europe or Asia or elsewhere? They're starting to get a, a, a few here and there. Um, I've, I've seen one spring up in, in uh, Italy. But, you know, if you look at the State of the Union in Italy, it's, it's very difficult. You know, the European Union with England coming out. Uh, so as far as a competitor... I think Italy's probably got the best chance. Germany, um, not so much. They have a, a national uh, a national sock called Falke, which is a gigantic brand. Um, and you're not really getting anything anywhere else that has much uh, substance to it. I think right now in, in, in performance socks, the American brands are probably the best. The... Future planning, you showed me the whiteboard in confidence, so I'll let you talk about it, but there was some interesting analysis of the cycling industry on it and where the retail side of it is going because bike shops are having to deal with the fact that so many people are buying so much stuff online and now some European brands and even domestic brands are going direct to consumer in some fashion, which you look at 
that at the surface level, oh, I can buy my bike online now, the last thing on my mind would be how that's going to affect a sock manufacturer. <laughs> but And if you don't want to go into it, we don't have to, but it's... Now, it's a great question, Tyler, and I don't, I don't mind going into it because we all have to think about it. And, and for the longest time, you know, the bicycle industry retailers have been saying, don't buy online, don't buy online. But it's almost been, you know, what do you do? And we've all, the, the industry have supported them, and we haven't. We, we've been, it's been a very, uh, you know, sticky, tricky situation. But point being is we all know if Canyon comes to America, and I'll say their name, which is supposed in uh, the third quarter of this year, then the consumer's going to get a pretty big discount to buy his bike and have it shipped to him at home. But the companies that are, that are starting to, to, to look at that are Trek and Specialized, as you know, and, and how they're going to handle themselves, or, or Raleigh or Fuji, you know, all these different models that are emerging. But the retailer is, they're just going to have to uh, evolve into that next generation bike shop. And you know, good mechanics and beer and TVs and and uh, and and local outreach into events. I mean, run stores survive on run events. You'll go to a run store in Florida where you're from, and and you'll you'll see a run store that makes its money off of run events, five Ks. So you know, there's always going to be a market for it, but there might not need to have such a a, a big footprint for for inventory. But we don't know. I mean, we are studying it. We are watching it. You know, we're in support of all of our retailers, and we we hold our map policies, and we hold everybody accountable for map policies. Um, but there's no retailer in America that can carry every sock that we make here at Defeat. You know, we have 50 employees too, and they can't carry our whole inventory on their on their shelf. So if the trend, I don't want to say continues because I don't know, but let's just say over the next five years that the amount of product that is purchased by the retailer just stocked, not purchased because a customer ordered a specific thing. Let's say that that general inventory stock for bike shops drops, say, 10% a year. So at the end of five years, you're left with substantially less orders being placed. How does How is that going to affect you guys? How are you going to make up for yeah, that? Yeah, you got to think about that. And uh, the good news is people are still going to ride bikes. And who's driving this is the consumer. The consumer is who is going to win the, this game. They're the ones, and I think most everybody in the world is is buying things online. You know, the big ones that we have to be careful on are the ones that are discounting so much. Um, you know, Amazon is an is a is. Have you seen that thing? That thing is, <laughs> geez, oh, it is crazy, uh, and we don't know. We can't. Unfortunately, we can't stop it. We can't control it. All we can do is say, there's a tidal wave, and here's some good waves. Let's ride the good waves, you know, when you can. I mean, it's it's going to be real hard. It really is. Um, do you guys sell on Amazon now? Because you your web, you sell direct off your website, right? There is a, a one account that uses the Amazon, and it's a uh, the people that own, believe it or not, it's the people that own, uh, like, New York. I love New York. You know, that T-shirt? They own that branding. And they're the ones that sell on Amazon. Sell defeat socks on Amazon. Right. Like and not whole just catalog or just I love New York just, socks? Just bits and pieces of whatever they want to sell. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what the jury's out on that part. We don't know where it's going to go. We just kind of have to keep watching. I know this, that the local retailer is going to be very important. 
it's going to be very important that if you get your bike shipped from from Canyon and you can't work on it, and my God, I don't even want to work on hydraulic brakes. You know, you got to be able to have a mechanic, and that's where the margins are on bike shops. They don't make the margins on the thirty percent margins that they make on bikes or whatever it is. Is that's kind of hard. But this model is changing. There's nothing that Defeat can do about it. There's nothing that uh, many of us can do about it except for to react. Um, the consumer is going to drive it, definitely. And not too far off of those lines, you guys just started a new thing called Defeat Bespoke, which is somewhat consumer-driven in that people can throw ideas up there. And Do you want to explain that? Yeah, Defeat Bespoke is really unique. It's going to give, first of all, First of all, it allows us to bring back our clothing line because what it's about is small batch products. So it's, it's, it's the world's first cycling um, crowdfunded site. So what we do is we throw up an idea, for example, a jacket, and we've got it ready to go if the consumers want it. And if they want it, then we go and build it. That's kind of how it's going to work. But it's going to be small batch. So there's a local artist. If you go to uh, Defeat Best Spoke today, you'll see that we have a woolly bully that is, looks like it's tie-dyed. So there's a local artist in Asheville who uses her garden to create the dyes, and then she hand-dyes the sock in small batch. So that is going consumer direct, and the people that are benefiting from that are the artists and Defeat, of course, and the consumer. Now, there are other things that we're going to be using it for, uh, some... some uh, uh, Fundraising, that's going to be really unique. We've got a new fundraising project on there where people can actually put a product up and if, if it sells, then the, the, they get the, the money from that uh, particular product. And so it allows artists to bring small ideas up and if it, they've got a successful idea, then we can use our expertise in manufacturing to make it happen. That's kind of the way we see that and we're excited about it, uh, definitely. And as far as the the revenue sharing for that goes, and also for the artist series socks, is I'm not sure you want to share actual numbers, but is did the numbers favor the artist or defeat, or is it kind of an even split? It's, it's even. It's an even split. Everybody's going to win in this. It's uh, and the consumer is as well. It's going to be a very unique thing, and we're going to be learning so much as we go. We have four items this week up. Four. We have a sock, we have a, a Barnstormers kit, and, uh, which is a jersey and short, and we have a uh, arm skin, Dura glove, and slipstream, I believe, uh, available as a kit. And I can't remember if it's slipstream or aerator. Uh, so next week, there'll be four more coming in, and we'll see how this thing grows. Is that going to be the typical turnaround cycle? A week's quick. Oh, no, no, no. That's just okay. <laughs> when we're launching these things to get them up. We're not putting them all up there at one time. And so the first four... There's a month, 30 days to fund, and once it's funded, it's different per item. And so, again, it's, it's a new platform that we're really excited about. Um, we hope to learn a lot the first year and figure out where it goes. And you guys custom built this yeah. program yeah. in-house, so you're not yeah. <laughs> building off of Kickstarter or something. No, it's not a Kickstarter totally project. Custom. This is something that we own, and it's uh, very unique and Unfortunately, we decided to do that right when we uh, completely redid our, our uh, digital platform here at Defeat. So in, in the month of January, we have changed our website, our uh, accounting system, and our inventory system, 
and now this. And, you know, one of the things we haven't touched on, which is briefly we did, our custom business is what started Defeat. Go back to day one. That's what started it. So custom for us is very important. Custom to the consumer is very important. And custom to the event and to the bike shop is very important. And that's why Defeat is here. And in America, we can really do a good job with that custom. You know, we offer six dozen minimums, you know, and we have some tricks up our sleeves on the custom side of things, too, that you haven't seen yet that hopefully within the next six months we'll be bringing to, to fruition. Cool. Will that make it so you can run them in lower quantities? or uh, Maybe. All right. All we right. have done this before. I will say that. And uh, one of our customers, we did it so you could run lower. And the customer that bought was uh, Google. Hmm. So we had, it, it really messed it up. So we, we kind of threw our hands up and walked away. But we're bringing this thing back, too. So lots of exciting things uh, at Defeat, for sure. Right on. We talked about a lot of stuff. Just to wrap up, is there maybe one or two key lessons that you've learned that if somebody wanted to come in and start an apparel company or something similar to what your guys are doing, maybe in a different space, what would you tell them? Oh, boy. I'd tell them to read a book called The E-Myth, which is about a woman who starts an apple pie factory. Because if you have, and, and, and in a nutshell, it's there's three personalities that start a company. There's the dreamer, there's the technician, and there's the, uh, gosh, what is it? The technician, the dreamer, and and then the person that runs a business, that, that type of person, I can't, manager, if you will. So the dreamer has all the ideas, you know, then you've got the technician that runs machinery, and then you've got the person that does all the business. You've got to remember, you've got to do all those things when you start a company. You know, which one is your cup of tea? Are you the dreamer? The, the visionary or are you the person that can run the sock machine and really do it well or are you the person that can write checks and balance books and all that there's so much to it that book really makes it simple and so I would I would have read that book if I want one thing but you know as I mentioned way back in this conversation I was a musician right out of high school my parents let me chase my dreams and I love that, chasing your dreams, no matter what it is. You know, chase that dream, whether it's bike racing or cooking apple pies, whatever it is, that's your dream. But if you're lucky, you find something like you did, Tyler, where it's your passion and you don't have to sit behind a desk all day and you do what you want to do and you get to go ride bikes with the Defeat Gang today for three hours on Maple Sally. That's a pretty good job. Yeah. Well, that's the key, right? That's the, the whole point of the build cycle and everything is to kind of show all the different ways you can take whatever it is you like to do and turn it into a business. Yeah, and if you wake up uh, at night worrying about a business, that's the way it is. It's, uh, I think Richard Schwinn once said that business is trouble, and when you're out of trouble, you're out of business, <laughs> right? That's a good one. We'll close on that because I can't top that. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, cheers. Enjoyed it. Okay. Are you as psyched as I am to take some of these principles and apply them to your own business? The part about staying lean and watching expenses really hit home for me. In my past businesses, there wasn't much control over the purse strings, and that's largely what led to their failure. With Bike Rumor, I've been super frugal on stuff like t-shirts or other frivolous items, but spending where it counts on our servers and back-end design. 
what's really got me thinking is how he builds relationships with athletes and artists that lead to deals that maximize value for both parties. He's not alone. A lot of cycling jersey brands are doing the same thing to great effect. And the customers win because they get unique limited edition goods. I took a ton of notes myself, so be sure to check out the post-game analysis on thebuildcycle.com, along with a timeline, links, and resources mentioned in this podcast, plus a video tour of their factory to see how they make socks. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button in iTunes and leave us a rating and review. That really helps us reach more people and grow this podcast so we can provide more value to you. And be sure to hit us up on social media. We are at The Build Cycle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Next week, I've got Sean Lily Wilson on tap, telling us how he started Full Steam Brewery with a focus on locally foraged ingredients. Until then, keep those socks clean and play hard.